You are listening to The Catholic Wire. And now we continue with the Lesson 12 of the Baltimore Catechism, number 3. Well, I will get back into the questions. The next question is, what do you mean by the indefectibility of the Church? By the indefectibility of the Church, I mean that the Church, as Christ founded it, will last till the end of time. What is the difference between the infallibility and indefectibility of the Church? When we say the church is infallible, we mean that it can never teach error while it lasts. But when we say the church is indefectible, we mean that it will last forever and be infallible forever. That it will re always remain as our Lord founded it and never change the doctrines he taught. Did our Lord himself make all the laws of the church? No, our Lord gave the church also power to make laws to suit the needs of the times, places, or persons as he judged necessary. Can the church change its laws? The church can, when necessary, change the laws it has itself made, but it cannot change the laws that Christ has made. Neither can the church change any doctrine of faith or morals. In whom are these attributes found in their fullness? These attributes are found in their fullness in the Pope, the visible head of the church, whose infallible authority to teach bishops, priests, and people in matters of faith or morals will last till the end of the world. Has the Church any marks by which it may be known? The Church has four marks by which it may be known. It is one, it is holy, it is Catholic, and it is apostolic. How is the Church one? It's one because all its members agree in one faith, are all in one communion, and are all under one head. How is it evident that the Church is one in government? It is evident that the Church is one in government, for the faithful in a parish are subject to their pastors, the pastors are subject to the bishops of their dioceses, and the bishops of the world are subject to the Pope. What is meant by the hierarchy of the Church? By that is meant the sacred body of clerical rulers who govern the Church. How is it evident that the Church is one in worship? It is evident that the Church is one in worship because all its members make use of the same sacrifice and receive the same sacraments. How is it evident that the Church is one in faith? It is evident because all Catholics throughout the world believe each and every article of faith proposed by the Church. Can a person who denies only one article of our faith be a Catholic? A person who denies even one article of our faith could not be a Catholic. For truth is one, and we must accept it whole and entire or not at all. Are there any pious beliefs and practices in the Church that are not articles of faith? Yes, there are many pious beliefs and practices in the Church, that are not articles of faith, that is, we are not bound under pain of sin to believe in them, yet we will often find them useful aids to holiness, and hence they are recommended by our pastors. Of what sin are persons guilty who put firm belief in religious or other practices that are either forbidden or useless? Such persons are guilty of the sin of superstition. Where does the Church find the revealed truths it is bound to teach? 
The Church finds the revealed truths it is bound to teach in the Holy Scripture and revealed traditions. What is the Holy Scripture or Bible? The Holy Scripture or the Bible is the collection of sacred, inspired writings through which God has made known to us many revealed truths. Some of them, some call them letters from heaven to earth, that is, from God to man. What is meant by the canon of sacred scriptures? By that is meant the list the Church has prepared to teach us what sacred writings are Holy Scripture and contain the inspired Word of God. Where does the Church find the revealed traditions? The Church finds the revealed traditions in the decrees of its councils, in its books of worship, in its paintings and inscriptions on tombs and monuments, in the lives of its saints, the writings of its fathers, and in its own history. Must we ourselves seek in the scriptures and traditions for what we are to believe? We ourselves need not seek in the scriptures and traditions for what we are to believe. God has appointed the church to be our guide to salvation, and we must accept its teaching as our infallible rule of faith. How do we show that the Holy Scripture alone could not be our guide to salvation and infallible rule of faith? We show this, first, because all men cannot examine or understand the Holy Scripture, but all can listen to the teaching of the Church. Second, because the New Testament, or Christian part of the Scripture, was not written at the beginning of the Church's existence, and therefore could not have been used as the rule of faith by the first Christians. Third, because there are many things in the Holy Scripture that cannot be understood without the explanation given by tradition, and hence those who take the Scripture alone for their rule of faith are constantly disputing about its meaning and what they are to believe. All right, fathers, um, what would you like to add to these questions and answers? The first thing is that I, I was hoping you were going to stop it there. Uh, <laughs> I was afraid you would go further with the questions uh, there is a lot to cover in this. Mm -hmm. well, the first thing is something that is interesting in our day and age is that understanding about the laws of the church. Uh, the fact that I'm, I'm skipping indefectibility. I think that's uh, fairly clear, but we can cover that also later. The church has laws, but some, some of the laws of the church are divine, meaning that they were made by God himself, by Christ himself. Other church are ecclesiastical, meaning that they were made by the church still with Christ's authority, but with the power of changing them or adapting them as, as it is needed. And it's important to know this distinction because, for example, one divine law would be the sixth commandment, the first commandment, the third commandment, all of those, and that the church has not the power to change. You know, the church can never say adultery is not a sin anymore. Why? Because that's a divine law. It's something that exceeds the power that was given to the church. But, for example, an ecclesiastical law would be, well, you have to fast uh, the Ash Wednesday. That's not something that God established from the beginning of time. It's something that the church found it useful, and the church, inspired by the Holy Ghost, established that law. Could the church change that law? Yes. And it, could it dispense of that law? Could it say, well, you are not bound to do this today because maybe you're sick or whatever? Yes. So it's important to know those things because many of the things that are being changed in the new religion, in the Vatican II religion, are things that are not ecclesiastical laws. They are divine laws. They were laws that we don't have the power to change. For example, the first commandment. We never have the power to allow someone to go and worship in false religions. That's not a divine, that's not an ecclesiastical law. The Pope cannot dispense from that law. That's a, a, a law that comes from God. 
And so it's important to know that distinction. So you mean I can't worship Pacamama even just for today? You can't give me permission just for one day? No, especially not if you're doing it live and, you know, transmitting it on YouTube and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really, yeah. And, you know, the church has a really beautiful legal system. You know, it's something that most Catholics don't come into direct contact with, but I find it absolutely fascinating. The church has nearly 2,500 laws, and it's the collection of the wisdom of 2,000 years of governance. And think about that, that there's a legal system binding and effective in every country, nationality, gender, race, and it works. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, it's, it's absolutely divine. It's amazing. And the prudence and balance shown in the church's laws are just wonderful. It's something really, really beautiful to, uh, to, to look at. Well, at least if you're like me and you enjoy legal matters, some people might just find it very dry, dry and boring. <laughs> but I, I find it really fascinating myself. It is and, true. It is true. And, and just that you're talking about how you know the church can change those laws at times and somebody asked me, well, what, you know, why would the church do that? And at different times in different places, you need different laws. For example, I remember in the seminary one day we came across or it was brought up a law um, regulating how many horses a bishop was allowed to take with him on his Episcopal visitation of his parish. So, you know, now the bishop doesn't throw too many horses in his, in his luggage and board the plane. You know? Bishops don't Ooh. avail themselves of the total complement of horses anymore. <laughs> not, not really. <laughs> so, I was thinking we could get some scrupulous uh, priest or seminarian going, Your Excellency, we don't have enough horses for the trip. We need to get some horses. Mm-hmm. Head on law says that we can only have 40. Or, or you could look <laughs> at the motor in your car and say, we got too many. But, oh, that's true. <laughs> that would be the more likely scruple. Yeah. Uh, some, uh, That's well, why I disabled your engine, Your Excellency. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I turned okay. it down a little bit. <laughs> can, can I throw in just one comment there, Father, before you go on? And, mm. um, just for, for the faithful, especially who don't, as I mentioned, don't commonly uh, deal with these laws of the church, it is useful to know that the priests are governed by a body of law. So mm-hmm. sometimes people will be, you know, ask questions like, oh, can I put candles there? Or can I put, uh, you know, can we put some flowers here? Or can we use this color here or something like that? And they might be a bit annoyed sometimes when the priests are like, well, no, you can't do that. But we're actually bound by a, a body of liturgical and canon law that regulates how we behave. Or sometimes, you know, if we're making people fill out, f- fill out paperwork and we have to sit there and ask them uh, marriage paperwork, you know, have you ever been married before? And they're like, well, you've known me my whole life, you know, or something like that. But there's a legal procedure we have to follow. And so it should be something uh, consoling for the faithful to know that we are bound by a body of law that is, is an expression, and they are as well, that is an expression of 2,000 years of practice. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I, I don't mean to encourage people to pass judgment of, on priests, of course, but you know, when you see a priest that is zealous about those things and he, he tells you that sort of stuff, you know, I can't do that because it's not allowed or you know, liturgy doesn't allow that or canon law, that's a very good sign. That's a, a very good sign and, and it should be, as you say, Father, comforting because that means you're in safe, in good hands. You are in, a, in the hands of a priest that is following the law of the church. That's something that actually uh, was very edifying to me about the bishop, about Bishop Piverunas. And it was the fact that everything was 
by the book. Everything was, this is what the church teaches. And even if you, you might be asking for something that you in your head say, oh, but this is, could be so much better, you know, or, or this would be so good or, or whatever. He'll say, no, we can't. That's, that's not what the church allows to do. And so that, that's a very good sign because that means that you are being sheltered under the teachings of the church. I guess we're kind of skipping in defectibility, uh, but, you know, I want to go into another point that is very important on this topic and is one, the church being one. That is, as they say here in the catechism, one of the four marks. It's actually the first one. And this is very relevant for both non-Catholics who are looking for the church. That has to be one. And that that is even in the epistle of the Apostle St. Paul who says that, that same thing, one communion, one body, one faith. There has to be one church because there is only one truth. You don't have several truths. And people make mis this mistake nowadays. They say, well, everyone can have their own opinion. Opinion is not the same that truth. There can only be one truth. And so even if people have different opinions and people say, okay, uh, yeah, everybody has a right to their own opinions, but opinions are not the truth. Uh, the truth and error do not have equal rights. Error does not have rights. Only the truth has rights. And so if there is only one truth, there is only one reality, there can only be one religion. And that is established in the same religion, holding the same faith, the same beliefs, the same kind of worship, the same authority. And so for, for non-Catholics, you have to find that one religion that has been since the beginning of time, since Christ, till now. It perseveres in the same worship, in the same faith, in the same teachings. And for those that are still going to the modernist church or, you know, the, the church that is following the Second Vatican Council, you need to think about this. Is this the same church? Does it hold the same worship? Does it have the same faith? Does it have the same, the same beliefs? And you will see that there is a, a great rupture between the church before Vatican Council and after the Vatican Council. They are not one. It's a different body. Exactly. I think it can probably be said that uh, the traditional Catholic faith is the only uh, religion out there that has this unity of faith, that has this mark. Like, I don't know, maybe there are some uh, some sects, like the, uh, the Shakers or the Mormons, or maybe not the Mormons, but uh, people like like uh, like the Amish. I don't know how united they are in faith, but certainly Novus Ordo Catholics are not united in faith. You'll find some like uh, Pope Francis who claims there's no hell, and you go into a, a Novus Ordo church and everybody has different beliefs. That's something I remember about being there. You'd you'd go to like have coffee downstairs and find out what everybody believes when you talk to them. They don't, they don't all share the same religion, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah, and that's, that's so contrary to, uh, or so different, I should say, from the experience among genuine traditional Catholics. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. one thing I've always found fascinating. You know, when we're in the seminary, you got a chance to travel quite a bit, meet a lot of people because it would help the priests drive, you know, on their various missions and whatnot. And when you met people who were devout Catholics, It was like meeting family. Everything mm -hmm. important was taken for granted, was known. You knew exactly where they stood on every real serious issue. Yeah. That's and true. So then that's, it's really a great feeling. Yes. I was going to say that. It's, it's really comforting. When I came from Mexico, you feel like you're 
in family. Actually, sometimes you feel closer. No offense mm-hmm. to my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you feel closer sometimes to those uh, that are near to you in the faith because, as you say, you're standing in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's, it's a big... Um, <laughs> that, that boat extends all the way backwards in time, too. Mm-hmm. You have um, that communion with, with everybody that's uh, believed and practiced the faith given by Christ to the apostles and taught to the world. I was going to say, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I could be pretty confident that a St. Augustine or a St. Thomas or a could come into my sacristy and, and wear my vestments and say mass, you know, Mm -hmm. they might, they might have a few few things to say to me to shape things up a little bit, but in substance, you know, yeah, it's the same thing. Get those pews out of there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no sitting down around here. Yeah. I was going to say, he'll probably say, like, where did you get this vestment? Wow. It's like, <laughs> um, something that I was going to, I was going to say a story about uh, what brother was mentioning. I was in high school and I was talking to this friend who was an Obosordo Catholic, meaning a Catholic that was in the modern, uh, modernist church. Mm-hmm. And um, she was telling me that she was a teacher of catechism. And I was like, oh, okay, so what, what do you teach? And she was telling me, and she says, well, you know, I told them about how uh, Jesus was a good prophet and everything. And I'm like, what, you mean that he wasn't God? No, no, he wasn't God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm like, if this, is, if, if this was it's the Middle Ages, you would be burned, you know? <laughs> it's the, I like, mean, chapter one of the catechism. Yes, I'm, I'm like, are you kidding me? Chapter You're three. teaching catechism in this quite, church? Yeah. It's just like, wow. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that's a perfect point. It's, it's very, very true. And, you know, we okay. go to uh, question, sorry, Father. No, go ahead. Go ahead. We go to question 554, uh, what we were mentioning in last episode. Could you be a Catholic if you deny just one article of the faith? Just one article. If you deny just the existence of hell, or if you deny just that the Virgin Mary is a virgin, or if you deny that, you know, there is such a thing as the Holy Ghost or the Catholic Church, and the catechism tells us, no, if you deny just one article, you are declaring God a liar and you're declaring the church a liar. And therefore, you're not a Catholic anymore. You become a heretic. You lose the faith. That's the case right now with many of the hierarchy that we see. Mm-hmm. And you know what's awesome is that Catholics believe these things. They are certain. It's the virtue of faith. They're certain. It's not like, do you conform to this external creed, you know, that, that, like, are you willing to say this so that you can be part of our community? No, they're, they're certain, they're certain. They actually Mm -hmm. genuinely are convinced and they're certain of these things. They have that virtue of faith. I think that's what gives that feeling of, like you said, family or such closeness is that it isn't a matter of opinion for them. It's not just an inclination or something that they're, uh, you know, they kind of like the idea of. Like if you were to go to, you know, a, a boating club and well, everyone there likes boats, they might not like the same boats. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's much, much deeper than that, that they have that certainty of faith. That's right. It's, it's not just a philosophy that we all share, but it's a recognition of a truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and exactly. You know, maybe I can take that, that cue that's holding on in my mind here. I wanted to comment on truth. And the, the people that know me well are going to be, oh, here he goes again. You know, my favorite. <laughs> but I think it's very important. Mm-hmm. What is truth? What do we mean by that? Because most most of us, 
most most in society would say don't have a clear idea of that. And that's not to denigrate, just that if you ask most people what is truth, what does it mean? Many people, if not most, would not have an answer. They wouldn't know what to say. I know I didn't know what to say until I started studying it. But it's a relationship between what's in your head and what's outside of you. If the ideas in your head match the reality outside of you, you have the truth. And it's that simple. But in practice, many, many people deny this. Because they say, well, that's your truth and this is my truth. It's like, well, is, is the chair a chair or is it not? You know, it's, it's there. I see it. It's a chair. Yeah. And I actually had someone say that one time to me. We were having this discussion talking about this topic. And there was a, you know, a, a piece of furniture there. I said, well, the, you know, whatever it was, the chair is the chair. You know, I would use a chair as example. And they go, well, that's true for you. I said, do you know how, how silly that sounds? You know, obviously yeah. it's true for both of us. You would sit on it. It's not going to collapse, but yeah, hopefully it won't collapse. Some chair is not so stable, but it depends who sits on it, I guess. Uh, but that, <laughs> that, that, is a, that is such a good point though. Um, there was, there were some philosophers. I remember this from our classes in the monastery uh, and we will have episodes on that too. There were some philosophers that, uh, you know, would hold that we were not able to know the reality They would say, okay, all that you see, it's only in your mind. It's a frame of your mind. And you never really have certainty whether it is reality or not. But, you know, the teacher would tell us, okay, this same philosopher that was saying this, he went to eat. He opened the door of the fridge. Oh, there weren't any fridges, but, you know, he would open the door <laughs> and get some food. Uh, he would go to the bathroom and he would have to use the bathroom. It's not like he was questioning those things. He was acting upon those things, which he knew to be reality. And one could say to such people who say there is no truth, you know, well, some something that I like to do is this. Can you open your wallet? Yes. Uh, there is this $50 bill here. Yes. I'm taking it. Well, no, that's mine. No, there, you said there's no truth. So, you know, what's truth for you is not truth for me. So I'm taking this $50 bill. It's, it's mine, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, whose truth is it? You know, so in, the same when you come, saying, I, I identify as the owner of your money. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we might as well do that. So that's one of the, you know, Father, when you mentioned that, that's one of the other things that is being attacked nowadays a lot is the concept that we can know truth and that there is only one truth. And one more point, one other point that I think is important is uh, revelation and, and the, the two sources of revelation. About tradition and, and sacred scripture. And this is important um, because this forms the, or it involves the substance of what we believe. You know, for a cradle Catholic, uh, being Catholic can just be a part of life, right? And But sometimes we see more with converts, people that come in, it's, it, when it's all new, it's kind of a neat thing to see that when you have someone learning the faith from the ground up because you see, can see it from a different perspective than as cradle Catholics a person can. And that there is a body of truths we must believe, right? We say, if you deny this, you cease to be Catholic. Okay, well, what constitutes You know, what what constitutes that? What makes up the things we have to believe? And so those those are the revealed the truths revealed by God, public revelation, given to us by the time of the death of the last apostle, and those are what are preserved and taught by the church. Those are the things that we cease to be a Catholic if we deny those things. So like you mentioned, that that Christ is God, that our lady is perpetual virginity of Mary, that uh, the Immaculate Conception 
you know, these, these things that hell exists that are uh, contained in that original body of doctrine and is the duty of the church to preserve that. So the church never introduces anything new into that. It never takes anything away from that. And those things never change in their meaning. They never change in what they, what they are is the duty of the church to preserve those things and to teach them. So the church is not free to teach whatever it wants, but it must, as Christ ordered her to teach all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We read at the end of St. Matthew's gospel when he sent forth his apostles to teach and baptize, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So that's, that's the duty of the church to preserve those teachings. And where do we find those teachings that it preserves? Like it says in the, in the catechism here in scripture and in tradition. And as it indicates, tradition is really the more important of the two, because without tradition, without the teaching of the church, without the living teaching voice of the church, we don't know for sure what scripture means, as is well proved by the thousands and thousands of different Christian religions. Mm -hmm. And for non-Catholics, you know, it's important to realize uh, that we wouldn't have the Bible if it wasn't for tradition, Tra uh, the Bible is born from tradition and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, it's previous to it. It's uh, simultaneous and it's, it's always there. Tradition is like the living, the living revelation we could say of the church. Uh, and again, I like to go, to go back to that example of the family. You know, uh, when we have tradition, when we have our, our tradition in the church, Uh, that means to say that we have a living church that has been permanent, living, teaching throughout history, while Protestants believe either in a church that was born, died, and then came back to life sometime near the 15th or 16th century, or they believe in a church that was just recently uh, revealed by some guy uh, somewhere in South Dakota. And, uh, you know, for us, I don't think there's any religion from no South Dakota. No discrimination against South Dakota. <laughs> We've got no problems, no problems uh, in South Dakota. A lot, of the nice, a lot of nice bikers in South Dakota. Yeah, the first name that came to my mind. Uh, but uh, it's beautiful to think of what we Catholics have. It's a living church, a living authority, which has that living tradition that has been kept alive all throughout these centuries. I don't want to go into this a lot of, in a lot of detail because we still have a lot of questions but I'm sure we will cover it also more in depth in other episodes. All right, then I'll get to them. I'll ask the next question here. How is the church holy? The church is holy because its founder, Jesus Christ, is holy. Because it teaches a holy doctrine, invites all to a holy life, and because of the eminent holiness of so many thousands of his children. How is the church Catholic or universal? The Church is Catholic or universal because it subsists in all ages, teaches all nations, and maintains all truth. How do you show that the Catholic Church is universal in time, in place, and in doctrine? It's universal in time, for from the time of the Apostles to the present, it has existed, taught, and labored in every age. Second, is universal in place, for it has taught throughout the whole world. Third, it is universal in doctrine, for it teaches the same everywhere, And its doctrines are suited to all places of persons, classes of persons. It has converted all the pagan nations that have ever been converted. Why does the church use the Latin language instead of the national language of its children? First, to avoid the danger of changing any part of its teaching in using different languages. Second, that it, 
all its rulers may be perfectly united and understood in their communications. Third, to show that the church is not an institute of any particular nation, but the guide of all nations. How is the church apostolic? The church is apostolic because it was founded by Christ on his apostles and is governed by their lawful successors, and because it has never ceased and never will cease to teach their doctrine. Does the church, by defining certain truths, thereby make new doctrines? The church, by defining, that is, by proclaiming certain truths, articles of faith, does not make new doctrines, but simply teaches more clearly and with greater effort truths that have always been believed and held by the church. What then is the use of defining or declaring a truth, an article of faith, if it has always been believed? The use of it is uh, twofold. First, to clearly contradict those who deny it and show their teaching false. Second, to remove all doubt about the exact teaching of the church and to put an end to all discussion about the truth defined. In which church are these attributes and marks found? These attributes and marks are found in the Holy Roman Catholic Church alone. How do you show that Protestant churches have not the marks of the true church? First, they are not one, either in government or faith, for they have no chief head and they profess different beliefs. Second, they are not holy because their doctrines are founded on error and lead to evil consequences. Third, they are not Catholic or universal in time, place, or doctrine. They have not existed in all ages, nor in all places, and their doctrines do not suit all classes. And fourth, they are not apostolic, for they were not established for hundreds of years after the apostles, and they do not teach the doctrines of the apostles. From whom does the church derive its undying life and infallible authority? It derives this from the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth, who abides with it forever. By whom is the Church made and kept, one holy and Catholic? The Church is made and kept, one holy and Catholic, by the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of love and holiness, who unites and sanctifies its members throughout the world. And that concludes the questions on the marks and attributes of the Church. So again, I'll ask for our, our guests to uh, expand on any of these questions and answers. Sure thing, and, and I'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible so that we can finish the episode uh, since it's going pretty long. Uh, the, the first thing is, well, we know the word Catholic actually means uh, universal. That was used first by St. Ignatius. This is uh, an apostolic father, someone that actually knew or was close to the apostles. And so the word Catholic comes all the way back from then. It's not just something that is of a recent, uh, of a recent invention or something like that. And uh, this is one of the most important and beautiful marks of the church, the fact that it's universal. It suits everyone, as it says in here, and it's been in all times after its, its founding and in all places, everywhere. It's very hard to have an institution that succeeds in so many different cultures and in so many different places, and you do see the church adapting itself. It's kind of like something almost, uh, uh, not symbiotic, but something that is organic to adapt to all cultures because it's something that was made by the creator of, of mankind. And uh, one quick comment on the Latin language. You know, if you go to the Latin mass, if you come to one of our churches or one of the churches where uh, priests like us have mass, you will see that everything is done in the Latin language. And there is 
a lot of beauties to this. It gives certain majesty to the rites. It, uh, it keeps unity. Uh, for example, I'm a priest from Mexico. I come here to America and I can say mass. People from America can go to my mass and understand it. If I go to China, to Europe, to uh, Russia, to Africa, I will say the same mass and the Catholics will know exactly what I'm saying and when I'm saying it. Or at least if they have their missile, they'll be able to follow it. And just to give an example of how this was destroyed with Vatican II, one time I was in Oklahoma City and I was wanting to see the churches in there, the old ones. And I went to the church, I think it was Our Lady of uh, Perpetual Help. And as I go into the church, a beautiful church, and the mass begins and it's all in Vietnamese. And I just start hearing all the respect. We love Vietnamese people. Uh, I don't understand Vietnamese at all. And I was just hearing the dang, 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 all the language. I could not understand anything, not even the, the sign of the cross. And I was thinking to myself, well, so much for, for trying to be understood by people. Now I can't understand anything in there. And so Latin language was actually something that made the church beautifully united both within the clergy and also within the ranks of the faithful. Mm-hmm. And we see that in, you know, not only could I travel to Europe or anywhere and say mass, but I could go there and have a 10 year old boy serve my mass and make all the responses. I can't communicate with them at all otherwise. And yet we can cooperate in the worship of almighty God. You know, we had that experience when I was in the seminary at, Omaha, and actually there was some other Mexican clergy there, you know, that they couldn't speak any English. I couldn't speak any uh, Spanish, but between some Latin. And, and when it came to the ceremonies, perfectly united, you know, and that's mm-hmm. really a wonderful thing. And just a somewhat of a, I don't know if personal is quite the right word, but anecdote in regard to, you know, you're saying how the church applies across all the races and across all the nationalities and is our priestly lineage so a a russian priest was telling us one day he'd done some research on our lineage and i was (laughs) ordained by a who or sorry i was ordained by a mexican bishop who was consecrated by an american bishop who was consecrated by another mexican bishop who was consecrated by a vietnamese bishop who was consecrated by a european bishop who was consecrated i think by another european bishop who was consecrated by a uh, iraqi bishop you know, and that's, and here I am a Canadian priest. So, yeah. and that's, that's my lineage. And every one of those, those steps was a, was a Catholic bishop, right? A man who, if I had lived at his time and been one of his priests, I would have respected and obeyed. And that's regardless of race or language or anything. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, And uh, well, the rest of the points here of the marks, I believe are, are fairly clear. Uh, something that I would like to note for Again, if there are any non-Catholics listening to this show, it's you might be saying to yourself or someone might ask, uh, well, these are things that the Catholics say that the church has to have, but they're, you know, it's not necessary that the church has these marks. And, and I would say to you, well, no, it is, it is necessary. It's logically necessary. You cannot have the church of Christ in any way without these four marks. If it is a divine church, and if it was established according to the gospel, it has to have these four marks. It's not a Catholic teaching. It is something that can be uh, can be brought out of pure logic. If the church was made by God and it was made according to Christ, 
it has to be universal. It has to go to all peoples and all places. It has to come from Christ. It cannot be something that dies halfway in between through history because Christ said that it was going to last forever. It has to be in the apostles. And just one point, one last point in that regards. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of non-Catholics would say, well, no, it doesn't have to be in the apostles. You know, that's not in the Bible. And uh, it is in the Bible. And one point actually in the Bible where it's very, very clear, and it didn't come to my mind until recently when I was reading St. Robert Bellarmine, in the Apocalypse, they speak of the church in the, the church as a the heaven, you know, as the new Jerusalem in heaven. That's the triumphant church, of course. And it's very interesting. It says that it hath 12 foundations, and the 12 foundations of the church were the apostles of the Lamb. So even there, even in heaven, it says that the foundations of the church were the apostles. How can you possibly say that here on earth, the church is not founded and established by the apostles? So it has to be the apostles and the successors of the apostles where the church is established, the foundation. And you, as a Christian, if you want to be in the true church, you have to find that church that has all those four marks. That makes perfect sense. Uh, the same faith that Christ gave the apostles, the apostles gave to the world, and uh, we we try to keep it alive ourselves today. It has to be that that same faith that that they passed on, not something that just popped up yesterday. I don't think they ever talked about uh, our duties to Mother Earth. Well, that gives us a lot to think about and to take home with us. So, thank you both again for joining us for a very informative episode of what every Catholic should know. Thank you, Father Saunders. Thank you, Father Zapeta. You've been listening to The Catholic Wire. This is your host, Brother Alexius, for the greater glory of God. God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Catholic Wire. If you have found this show helpful, please say a prayer for all our collaborators. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels and share with your friends. For questions and comments, you may contact us at thecatholicwire.org.